Well, I did promise you a, um, a study on the covenants of the Bible. And uh, so we're going to look at the ones that we've not covered so far. Uh, they are important to us. And um, it, it, it gives us a greater understanding of who God is, what he is like. And uh, many of the promises of God, the covenants of God, they play into, as we'll talk about, things concerning the end. And I pray to God we're getting really close. Uh, so, yeah. But if we're going to get through the covenants, I'm not going to be able to exposit all of the, the, the details. So we're going to have to tackle this more as an overview of um, the, the, the details of the covenants themselves. And um, I've had a pretty gnarly week, so I don't know how much information I do have. And I don't know how much information I don't have. So we could get out early or we could get out late. <laughs> so um, I, I'm not a professional orator or a, whatever, uh, or speaker in general. Uh, so I don't time my sermons or any of that. You just get what you get. And um, so my wife says, don't throw a fit. Okay. You chose to come here. <laughs> So why don't you all stand up, <clears throat> and we'll pray. It's really good to see you guys. I love seeing your faces. I love just being together. And uh, most of you know that I'm, I'm not a big, I don't like to listen to a lot of music. And uh, it, it dawned on me the other day, I was listening to some hymns from uh, Shane and Shane. And I don't know if they're okay anymore. It seems like everybody's going in and out of what's okay and what's not. Uh, depending on their associations, but I could hear the congregation in the background, and I said, I really like this a lot. I like the hymn itself, but when, it, when it's not a performance, but it's a worship service, I realized that's, that's when I like to listen to music, when I can hear the congregation. And I guarantee that's what the Lord likes about the context of our corporate worship. And, uh, so anyway, let's, let's pray. Well, Father, we love you. And as we have the flowers here um, close to the stage, just reminded of um, Will, who attends here, he serves here, Lord, and recently lost his father. I, I just pray that as he has not had time to grieve because of all that has had to take place in regard to preparing for the memorial and all of that, and his mother as well. And I just pray that Lord, you would grant them that time now that they could draw close to you <clears throat> and grieve within the safety of your arms, Lord. And so bless them. And Lord, I, I'm thankful also for the study that we have. Um, I love the covenants. I love to study them, not for their own sake, but because it reminds me that you are a God of promise, that you're a covenant keeper, um, even though <clears throat> I am a covenant breaker. Um, we're all covenant breakers. And um, it's good that we have a God that can keep a promise even when we don't. And so I pray that you teach us more about your character this morning and uh, that all of these things would lead into what we know of as a, a divinely orchestrated end, that it's all within your, your, your sovereign control and nothing is going to be a toss-up in the end. So, Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we'll go ahead and sit down and...
Uh, I guess you could turn to uh, Genesis chapter 1. <clears throat> That'll be the first. It's always good to start at the beginning. We've, uh, we've spent a lot of time, uh, really, since we've moved into this building. Uh, what have we been here now? Four and some years. Uh, we've been looking at the, the old covenant that was made with Israel at Mount Sinai. And then the new covenant that was established by the blood of Christ at what we might call Mount Calvary, uh, Golgotha. Uh, those two covenants, uh, as we have seen there, they really are the focus of the book of Hebrews and the, the, uh, the letter to the Galatians. Uh, and those two covenants, especially the new covenant, is the one that has the most bearing upon us as new covenant people, the people of Christ. But there are other covenants in the Bible. There are actually tons of them. God and the people of God are making covenants all the time. But there's, you know, specific ones that um, Bible students have given their attention to uh, over the years. And those are the ones that we want to cover today. They do have real-life implications for us. Uh, they influence, as we've said, the way that we understand God. And they also affect the way that we interpret Scripture. Uh, and the future the, as well. We talk about eschatology. Uh, the eschaton means the last, the things of the end, the last things. And uh, what God has said in the past <clears throat> is determinative for things of the future. And, um, and that's a good thing, right? That God clings to his word, he's faithful. And uh, wherever we find perhaps a covenant or a promise that is not fulfilled, but it's attached to God's integrity, guess what? We're just waiting for it to be fulfilled. Nothing can stop uh, God's sovereign purposes uh, in human history. So, so before we look at the covenants themselves, let's just quickly define uh, that term and then some of the variations that can kind of exist within a covenant. Uh, we may have an idea of what a covenant is, maybe thinking about a um, where you live, there's a, the, what do they call those things, the, the um, neighborhood covenants or whatever, the covenant of marriage, um, <clears throat> those sort of things. Some of the covenants in the Bible are not actually like those covenants. Uh, some of them are. So anyway, um, a, a covenant itself, as you probably already know, is a contract. It's, it's an ag agreement, possibly. Uh, between two parties where one or both parties agree to fulfill certain terms and conditions, uh, obligations and responsibilities uh, to the other party. <clears throat> Covenants can be collateral or they can be unilateral and the differences are absolutely essential and, uh, and, and they do determine how we kind of deal with certain doctrines within the Bible. So the difference is in a collateral covenant, both parties come together and they agree together to the responsibilities and the obligations that each must fulfill. In a unilateral covenant, only one party establishes the terms and only one party has any responsibilities. Those are actually the best ones, as long as God is the one who makes the contract and promises to keep it, okay? So a collateral covenant, we would say, is an if-then covenant. An example of a collateral covenant 
is, is the covenant that was made with Israel at Mount Sinai, where God clearly says to Israel that if you are faithful to obey my statutes, then I will bless you. If you, I will, I'll bless you. And, and the blessings in the, that particular covenant, this one with so many conditions placed on Israel, uh, they're, they're physical, they're maternal, they're material, military, militarily, agriculturally, domestically, politically. I mean, you look at the, the promises made to Israel that if they were obedient, God would just do crazy things for them. Um, yeah. Israel um, could enjoy so much. In fact, we talk about the heresies of the, the, the health and wealth uh, garbage, the prosperity doctrine. Well, most of that comes from the Old Covenant, a covenant that was made with ethnic Israel and not with the church. And that's one of the great differences between the covenant of Sinai and the covenant at, at Calvary. You know, Christians, regardless of how obedient they are to the word, have zero guarantee of those kinds of blessings. Zero guarantee. In fact, the opposite is true. The more faithful you are to the covenant, the new covenant, the more likely you are to suffer. It's true. Be persecuted and hated by the world because that's what Jesus promised to us. Uh, the apostles suffered greatly for their faithfulness to Jesus. And, and Paul even told Timothy, which is a promise of the Holy Spirit, just as it was from Jesus, that anyone who desires to live godly will suffer persecution. That's 2 Timothy 3.12. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. A servant is not greater than a master. Okay? They will hate you. So godliness in the old covenant meant physical blessing in this particular world. Godliness in the new covenant means physical trouble in this world. Remember Paul, when he uh, was converted on the road, the Lord said, I'm going to, he said to um, <clears throat> Cornelius, huh? We're lacking Bible scholarship in this group. Oh, look, anyway, that guy that was in Damascus, <laughs> he he said, God said, the Lord said to him, I'm going to show Paul how many things he must suffer for my sake. That's definitely a transition from old covenant to new covenant. Okay, yeah. Anyhow, the, the covenant of Sinai was a collateral covenant. God said to them, if you do this, then I will do that. But there are also unilateral covenants in the Bible, whereas we've said only one party, namely God, is responsible to do anything, but there is a covenant in the Bible where God makes the terms and only man has to keep them. <laughs> I don't want any part of that covenant. <laughs> Nothing to do with that covenant. Yeah. These uh, covenants where God sets the terms and then guarantees it based upon his own integrity. These are called uh, oftentimes covenant promises. Covenant promises. Those are good ones. One-sided one-sided, based upon God's integrity. Okay, so with those uh, examples, definitions, let's look at the covenants and the promises that we didn't get to in Galatians and Hebrews. Here they are. Here's the list and uh, some uh, passages attached to them. We have the Edenic covenant and the Adamic covenant. Sometimes those two are grouped together and then kind of subdivided. I'm going to just separate them here. Uh, Edenic is Genesis 1 through 2. The Adamic uh, covenant, Genesis 3. The Noahic covenant, Genesis 9. The Abrahamic covenant is Genesis 12, but it's repeated again and again and again throughout the Old Testament. Okay? 
and then referred to many times in the New Testament. <clears throat> and then we'll end, not today, um, later on with the Davidic covenant, also known as the throne promise. Uh, very much in love with the throne promise, uh, but we can't get to that today. So let's look at the Edenic covenant. Now, to begin with, when we, when we look at this covenant from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, uh, not all Bible, Bible teachers agree on whether or not it's an actual covenant uh, between God and Adam before the fall. Okay? Some believe that instead of a covenant, there was only a set of divine mandates accompanied by conditions and consequences, more like a parent to a child rather than a covenant. Okay? Uh, I'm personally undecided. Uh, I, I see both, but I haven't landed on either, which is an interesting place for someone like me who believes that Genesis chapter 1 through 3 are the most important chapters uh, of the Bible. And, uh, and, and I mean that in the absolute sense. Uh, Genesis 1 through 3, in my understanding of Scripture, um, everything is determinative based upon what begins there. Uh, we'll get to that hopefully another time. But let me read the text to you. Um, in Genesis chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 26. As I said, I don't have time to exposit all the details, uh, so we're going we're gonna to overview it, okay? But I will read the text to you. Uh, this is the sixth day of creation. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. You notice the plurality immediately. Um, I think that solid theology would say that it's the trinity interacting with itself. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over, over the cattle, over all earth, all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. There's a lot of creepy things on the earth. <laughs> Most of them have two legs. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also, to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and every Thing that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Now we have to go over to chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, in order to find the one prohibition, uh, the one condition. So Genesis 2:16 says, uh, Adam speaking to, or God speaking to Adam, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Or in dying, you shall die. All right, some points of the covenant. In Genesis 1.26, God expresses his intent. And then he, he does just what he intended. Verse 27, man is created in God's image. What a, an astounding thing that we bear the imago Dei, the image of God. And uh, man was created like God to be like God. Just think of the implications of that. He created you to be like him in this world. You are an ambassador one way or another, whether you like it or not. And man should be living up to 
the image of God in him. I don't have time to go into all that. And here are the responsibilities that man has in this world as an image bearer. He says they, that man is to be fruitful. That's to have babies. We've pretty much taken care of that here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, we, we have kept the terms of the covenant. They are to subdue the earth and take dominion over it and all life in it. And they're not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, if this is a covenant, uh, there doesn't seem to be any obligations upon God, does there? God makes the terms, and he hands them over to Adam, and he says, keep these, all of these, and just don't do this one thing, okay? Covenant is imposed on Adam and Eve like rules established for children in a home. It's very similar, okay? And this arrangement would have been passed on to their descendants as well, if the first couple had not eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, we would still be in the Edenic state if, um, if there was no rebellion. But as we know, this uh, particular situation was terminated uh, in the first generation. That, that's not a compliment to uh, us. Okay, and if I understand God uh, and anything about his nature, Adam and Eve were the best that humanity would ever have to offer. God, in his love and his justice, he gave us the best chance. They, those were our heroes. They didn't go so well. Yeah, yeah, rebellion. So now everything in this covenant seems to be based upon their obedience to the command that's regarding this particular tree. It's the only one where a condition is attached to it. The only one with consequences. Um, it's... And all of it, it's very deeply theological. Let me just say something briefly about this. Before the fall, Adam and Eve had a, a, a certain quality or kind of life in them, which was threatened by a certain kind of death if they disobeyed. Adam and Eve were, understand, alive before the fall, before sin, and they were alive after sin, but they had experienced a kind of death in a certain way. It's all very unusual. They were now alive in a different way, and then after sin, they were, they were dead, but alive and, and dying. We're alive, but we're dead before we come to Christ. But our bodies are still enduring the consequences of the fall, as many of you know. We're dying. But that was all after the fall. Before the fall, nobody was dying. They were essentially created eternal uh, in their physical form, and they lost that through sin. And now, every child born to them, of course, does, does not enjoy the same kind of life that was in them, uh, at least before they sinned. And all their children are born with the same death their parents experienced after sin. Yeah, obviously, we're born alive, but dead and dying. We all bear the consequences of Adam's sin. Romans chapter 12, verse 5 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. That is, we all sinned in Adam. He was, our, he was representing God in the world, but he was also representing all of humanity. So when he sinned, in an interesting way, we sinned with him. And the consequences of our father fell upon us. Yeah. 
And this is why we must all be made alive through Christ Jesus, who through the work of redemption has fixed and will completely fix everything uh, when he destroys sin in its entirety. Amen? So all of this does have eschatological implications, doesn't it? It does, yeah. In the new heaven and new earth, things will return to something similar to the Edenic state, but everything, including ourselves, will be better uh, than Adam and Eve were. Okay? We will not be capable of falling. And how many think that's a better condition? Yeah. yeah. So that's the Edenic covenant. It was a unilateral covenant because God alone establishes the terms. Uh, it was a conditional covenant because life was conditioned upon Adam's obedience. Okay? And, um, yeah. Now, I, I actually am quite excited to teach Genesis 1 through 3 again. I'd, I'd love to teach all of Genesis again, but specifically Genesis 1 through 3, because I said I believe it's the most important chapters of the Bible. And I believe that because of the way that Jesus and the apostles refer to these chapters for final authority on issues of essential doctrine. There's like 35 references, and just the way that they used Genesis 1 through 3 is very important to our understanding of, of uh, God and his will for man. So if you want to have an interesting study, uh, go through the New Testament and look at every time Jesus and the apostles quoted or referred to Genesis 1 through 3, and then kind of evaluate the implications, how they were using it, why they were using it that way. And then give me your notes, and I'll use those when I teach. Uh, you can save me all that time in, in research. So anyway, let's move to the next covenant, the Adamic covenant. Uh, specifically, Genesis uh, chapter 3, verse 14 through 19, uh, which is the, the curse following Adam's disobedience regarding, of course, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. These are the immediate consequences of sin for all parties involved. The text goes this, uh, this way. So the Lord God said to the serpent, okay, so he, sin has happened and everybody's blaming each other. One of the, the lovely uh, products of sin and he first addresses Adam and then he addresses Eve and then he, he looks at the serpent who has nobody to blame and, uh, and so he begins with the serpent um, in the curse. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you're cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, this deep-rooted hatred between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head or crush and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree, which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. This is why I don't garden and you shall eat the herb of the field. That's why I let you garden. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. The, the entire section is describing the curse, the consequences for sin, but there's, there's this one verse within it that promises hope. Maybe you saw it, verse 16. It's our text of interest. God is speaking directly to the serpent 
and his relationship, regarding his relationship to the woman. Not a relationship he wants, by the way. Okay? He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and he shall bruise his heel. So it's kind of interesting. It it's actually produces an imagery. Uh, the idea of a, a snake, you know, striking at your heel. Now, most people, when a, a snake strikes, they do not stick around and stomp. How many of you guys have been struck at by a snake? And I don't mean a water snake. It's real threatening. But like a, like a, we don't even have to make it a poisonous snake. How about a, how many of you guys know what a bull snake is? They're a lovely creature in Wyoming. Oh, yeah. And they are like a bull. And they love to strike. They're super aggressive. But when a bull snake strikes, and I'm not afraid of snakes, but I don't stand around to try to stomp on it, okay? But in this particular imagery, there's a strike at the heel, and then there's a stomp with the heel. So there's a damage done to the heel, but then there's a fatal blow to the skull. You get stomped out, okay? It's interesting. The text here is talking about hatred, conflict, and victory. Hatred, conflict, and victory. God promises mutual hatred between the woman and the serpent, which will then culminate in a conflict between their offspring. Okay? But victory is promised to the seed of the woman. Okay? The, the hatred and conflict of the victory, you guys, they are cosmic in nature. They're cosmic in nature. God is not talking about the snake itself, but the mastermind who possessed the snake to deceive Eve which we all know he is because Jesus in the Gospels says that it's Satan, okay? And, and he is the authority on the interpretation of Genesis, amen? Okay, just checking on that. And God is not talking about just any child of the woman. He's referring to a male child who alone can address this enemy, okay? God is talking about a cosmic showdown between two individuals, Satan and Christ. And mind you, Satan is no match. Satan is no match. Satan's victory in the garden has an expiration date because Jesus, who was born of the woman, came to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3.8. And it seems to be a reference back to Genesis 3.15, which for a couple thousand years now, this verse has been called the, the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. It's the first mention of hope, first mention of hope. And um, every hope of redemption then will build on this initial covenant that God made here. Um, and I, there's an interesting thing about this. We, we call it the Adamic covenant, but this particular verse, God is not speaking to Adam. He's speaking to Satan. It's kind of a satanic covenant in a good way. But Adam and Eve are standing there listening. They're, they're being chastised. They're they're, they're falling under a curse, but in the midst of it, they're listening in on hope. Immediately after sin has entered the world, God is speaking of hope. I, I gave all this responsibility to you guys, and you didn't even have a sin nature, and you, 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 you bombed bad. Obviously, humanity in and of himself is not capable of keeping covenant, so he delivers this promise of, of hope. The covenant promise is unilateral. God alone establishes it. You guys, it is unconditional. No conditions are placed upon any other party. God alone is responsible to bring this to pass. Hatred. Holy hatred. Conflict. 
and ultimate victory. You got to like that. It's also one of the things I love about when a promise is attached to God's integrity, it's irrevocable. It will never be altered. It will never be changed or dissolved. Amen? It's good stuff. Now, this promise has been partially fulfilled through Christ's death and resurrection, and then it will be finally and, for, for, uh, finally and forever fulfilled when he returns and he destroys the enemy of our soul, when he casts him into the lake of fire. That will be... But, but not before Satan takes a knee and confesses with his mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. That's going to be a great day. All right, let's, let's look at another one here, the Noahic Covenant. Noahic Covenant. Of course, Genesis chapter 9, 11 through 17. It's immediately after Noah and his family. They, they get off the ark. Here's the covenant. God says, Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, and this is an important promise to us here locally. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. Okay? I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be in the cloud and I'll remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. I wonder why God is so circular in his covenant there. You notice that? He repeats himself like three times. Uh, you think he's trying to emphasize something about that? Yeah. Now, actually, God said in Genesis 6, 18, before the flood, he said, Noah, I am going to make a covenant with you. And so then he makes it with him uh, after the flood itself, after he's rescued him. And maybe he did that to demonstrate to Noah his faithfulness. Okay. So let's examine some of the features of the covenant. The covenant is between God, it says, and all living things on the earth, verse 12 and 15, guaranteeing that, that water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. All flesh. And water can do that. Again, by the way, it's, it is very possible. Uh, you ever studied the bones that are found on Mount Everest? I, I don't, last time I checked, whale bones do not belong at like 20,000 feet. <laughs> it's just not a good place for them. And if, it's, if they're there again, that's bad for us. Okay, really bad. <laughs> this covenant is for perpetual generations. It is an everlasting covenant. Aren't you glad? Verse 12 and 16 the covenant is remembered by a visual sign, the rainbow, verse 14 and 16. But notice some other things here. It's unilateral, it's unconditional, and it's perpetual. It's irrevocable. It's unilateral because God makes the terms without our participation and without our agreement. He will keep the promise whether we like it or not, whether we're obedient or disobedient. True? Yeah. We are completely passive in this covenant. It's also unconditional. Uh, as I've already said, we can't keep or break this particular covenant. All the responsibility uh, is on God's shoulders. We don't have to be good. We don't have to, it doesn't matter if we're bad. God will never, ever flood the earth, the whole earth, to destroy all flesh ever again. 
Now, imagine if the covenant was conditional. <laughs> you guys, the earth would be flooded weekly. <laughs> Every generation would be flooded. <laughs> That's true. We're, we're, we're just so sinful. We're so rebellious. Okay? But this covenant is everlasting. It's perpetuated all generations and has no expiration date. God has obligated himself forever. Now, does the covenant have any significance for us today? Well, it's testified to God's faithfulness for over 5,000 years. Keeping promise for 5,000 years says a lot about somebody's character. Okay? And its history is how we establish faithfulness. It's the same way with people. Um, but none of you have 5,000 years of faithfulness. Yeah. Uh, it gives us great confidence that God always keeps unconditional promises no matter what. And if he has kept this promise in spite of man's enduring wickedness, we have strong consolation that he will keep his other unconditional promises exactly the same. Okay. I really enjoy God's unconditional promises. And I think we've got time for one more. And perhaps, uh, well, whatever. It's, it's an important covenant. It's made to Abraham for the first time in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And then there's an addition made to it in verse 7. It goes like this. And please listen careful, carefully to this covenant. Now the Lord had said to Abraham, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then after Abraham arrived in Canaan, God said this in Genesis 12, 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. So he inserts the land promise into the Abrahamic covenant. So here are the features of the covenant. And listen to the nature of this. God promises Abraham, he says, I will make you a great nation, whether you like it or not. That's what that means. Okay? I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will make you a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I will give you this land to you and your descendants. Verse 7, I will, I will, I will, I will, basically eight times. Uh, some people call these the sovereign I wills. Makes no difference what Abraham likes. Makes no difference if he is obedient. Makes no difference if he is disobedient. It's crazy. So who is it that made the covenant? God. What does Abraham say? Nothing. Nothing. What responsibilities did God place on Abraham in the covenant? None. Not in the covenant. He did tell him to go to the land. He did. Okay. Who are the constituents? Abraham and his descendants. Yeah. And who will be affected by this covenant? Everybody. In some way. That's right. So this covenant promise is unilateral. God alone makes the covenant. It's unconditional. Abraham bears no responsibilities. It's perpetual. It's everlasting. It was made to Abraham and his physical descendants. Is he still having descendants? He most indeed is. Yeah. I mean, there is a gene pool that is ethnic Israel come from Abraham. It's, they're there now in the land of Israel. Okay. It, it's, it's, they are real descendants of Abraham, physical descendants. It's also something important about this promise is that it's national. 
God promised to make Abraham a great nation. It's geographical. It concerns a, a specific piece of land. And then it has global implications involving all families of the earth. Of course, as we know from the New Testament, this blessing will come through Christ, okay, who is a descendant of Abraham. His death and resurrection will be the greatest blessing to humanity, to those who believe. Mind you, it is the greatest curse to those who disbelieve. Okay, we'll talk about that another time. Now, this promise of all the other promises is, is not isolated. It's repeated many times again to Abraham and his descendants. To Abraham alone, we find it just in these passages. Okay? Now, if, if, if a promise is stated over and over and over and over again to multiple people, hundreds of thousands of people, this one, do you think that God is trying to get something across? Do you think that it has value, has implications? I think we should pay attention. It was repeated again to the patriarchs and then to the whole nation, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Jacob and Isaac at one time, and then to the whole nation in 1 Chronicles 16, 15 through 18. Again, it was repeated to the prophets. Now, when I say uh, pre-exilic, I mean prior to Israel's exile to Babylon. It was given to Isaiah 11, 11 through 12. And then even afterwards to Ezekiel in chapter 37, verses 21 through 25. Now, if I were a betting man, I would say that this is the most repeated promise in all of the Bible, the most. Okay. And I'll bet once in a while if I know I'm going to win. <laughs> Now, what I want to do is, because this covenant, uh, as well as the Davidic covenant, are the two most controversial covenants in this regard. So people have objections to uh, the things that we're talking about right now, and I want to address some of those. You may be familiar with them. You, you may be even partial to them, okay? Objecting to some of the things we've concluded. Some people say that the promise to Abraham regarding the land was both conditional and it, was, and it has been fulfilled. It's conditional and has been fulfilled. If it was conditioned on Israel's obedience, as they believe it is, then they say it has most certainly been forfeited through their disobedience, so the promise no longer applies. Okay, well, I can't actually find any conditions anywhere in the scriptures regarding the land promise to Abraham and his descendants. I can't find a single one. Um, now, we will talk about the conditions for possessing and enjoying God's blessing in the land, but no conditions are stated in regard to the land belonging to Israel forever. Now, as far as the, the promise being fulfilled, and therefore, you know, now it's, it's done, people quote Joshua 21, 43 through 45, but if God's promise was fulfilled in its entirety, in 1300 B.C., why does God talk about establishing the land promise to Israel 700 years later in Jeremiah 11, chapter 5, and Amos 9, 14 through 15? If it was fulfilled hundreds and hundreds of years earlier in the time of Joshua, why would he talk about establishing it again after the time of Jeremiah? It's a very strange argument. And even if Israel possessed and ruled over all of the land for a time, they have not possessed it perpetually, not forever, as Genesis 13, 14 through 15, and 17, 7 through 8, and 48, 4, and Psalm 105 say. 
It says this is an everlasting covenant. It's perpetual for all generations forever. Now, some have objected and said the words everlasting and forever, they don't mean everlasting and forever. If that is true, now listen, if that is true, the new covenant is not an everlasting covenant either, as Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 says. And you know what? No one is willing to say that. Okay? And if everlasting does not mean everlasting, uh, there is no guarantee that God will not flood the whole earth again. Nobody's willing to say that either. But we will attack the Abrahamic covenant and say it's not everlasting. I don't get it. I don't understand. The clear sense of the promises made to Abraham and his descendants is that it will never end. That's what they clearly understood, and that's what the text means. It is everlasting. Other people object and say, how do you explain Israel being kicked out of the land? Doesn't that prove the promise was already fulfilled and came to an end? My question is, why would it? Why would it? God told them that for disobedience they would be punished outside of the land for 70 years, and then he said, I will bring them back again. Jeremiah 25, 9 through 12. And then in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel says, hey, I was reading the book of, of Jeremiah, and it says, we're only going to be here for 70 years. We better get ready. And then, of course, they start going back just as God promised. But the question is, how does disobedience terminate an unconditional promise? And why would Ezekiel repeat the promise after the return from exile? Also, Isaiah prophesied, listen carefully, of a second time that Israel would be exiled, which took place in 70 AD, after which he says God will once again regather them to the land. And after they are regathered the second time, they will never be exiled again, Ezekiel 37, 21 through 25. Never again, never again. That's interesting stuff. The land belongs to Israel unconditionally by divine promise. But here's something that people overlook. Their possession of the land and their enjoyment of God's blessing in the land has always been conditioned on their obedience to God. That's Deuteronomy 28, 8 through 13. The land is theirs, but it's only theirs to possess and enjoy when they're obedient to God. It does not change the promise as being everlasting, but if they want to be there and enjoy it, guess what? They have to be good, and they is bad, okay? <laughs> now, this is not a conclusion of someone's theological bias. This is clearly what the scriptures teach. Now, if I've said many times to my objecting friends, I say, look, I don't care which way it is. If the Bible says it, I'll go with it. But if it doesn't say it, I'm not going with it. And what we're talking about is just, that's clearly what the scriptures say. Okay. So this covenant promise of God remains to this day unfulfilled in its entirety. Israel is yet to possess all of the land that God promised to Abraham, which is this, from the Nile River in the south to Lebanon in the north, the Euphrates River in the east, and the Mediterranean Sea on the west. They've got the Mediterranean Sea on the west, partially. And between the West Bank and the Mediterranean, there's a spot in there where it's like 15 miles wide. It's not a great military advantage, by the way. Yeah. So Israel is present in a very small portion of the land today, which is a miracle in itself, by the way. No other people group in world history has been removed from their land for more than a couple generations and returned with their religion, language, heritage, and the rest. Israel was removed in 70 AD, and they came back, and they became a nation on May 14, 1948. 
That is a very long time. And not just that, they were scattered throughout Russia and Europe and Africa and Arabia. Very interesting. Yeah, but they are not possessing all of the land, and they're certainly not enjoying all of God's blessing in the land. They have miscarriages. As long as they have miscarriages in Israel, they're not enjoying God's full blessing. Okay. Also, they have enemies all around. Their borders are dangerous. The international community, if you pay any attention to the UN, is extremely hostile to them, even though they originally gave the land back to them. Much of the Muslim world, along with other groups, would rather them not exist, all because, really, ultimately, they're unbelieving, they're disobedient. Most Jews are secular, meaning they don't have any religious faith at all. Christian Jews are a micro-community, very micro-community within the Israeli population. The majority of those who do profess faith are really no different than the Pharisees who Jesus rebuked in the Gospels. Israel has the largest gay pride parade in the world because homosexuality is so prevalent and accepted there. They are the leaders in stem cell research from aborted babies. Abortion is commonplace in Israel. Their government is obviously corrupt. And most of all, they have rejected Christ. Yeah. So they're currently under divine chastisement, just as Romans 11 says they are. So guess what I'm waiting for? <laughs> yeah. I'm looking forward to Israel's repentance, which is also promised in Romans 11. I'm looking forward to a believing Israel possessing and enjoying all of God's covenant promises. I'm looking forward to that because of all of its eschatological implications. <laughs> because as soon as that happens, none of the things that we see now will be happening. It's going to be crazy. And that'll fit into our study of eschatology. But they will repent. And they will possess and enjoy the land, all of God's blessing, because God promised it. Concerning Israel, the Apostle Paul said, the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. So Romans eleven twenty nine, 29, uh, I don't care what your theology is, it will not revoke the gifts and the callings of God for Israel. Okay. So why is this significant to us? i got to wrap this up. Listen, if God does not keep his promises to Abraham, you have no certainty that he will ever keep a promise to you, especially considering how often God repeats that promise, refers back to it and back to it and back to it. But if God has proven himself faithful everywhere else in the scriptures and throughout human history, we can have great confidence in his faithfulness. Amen? Yeah. Uh, the only covenant left to discuss is the Davidic covenant, the throne promises, 2 Samuel 7. We'll look at it next week, and then all of this stuff will flow very nicely into a discussion about uh, end times. And uh, I keep, people are always talking about it. It's all over YouTube. Um, I don't think that's the safest place to go for eschatology. Uh, and the interesting thing is, is um, you know, these generations that are now coming up in the church, they've, they've all got this passionate eschatology, but in talking to them, I realize they don't actually understand their eschat eschatological position. They know sound bites and bits and pieces from this particular personality that they listen to, but they don't really understand it in the scope of all the scriptures. And uh, so it's just this mic-mash of different ideas, and they'll, they'll throw scriptures out there and all this. So there's all this confusion all over the place. And, uh, and I think that's bad. I don't think it's good. Our God is not the God of confusion. Uh, I believe that his scriptures are clear, and, and we'll get into that and how it's related 
to um, Abraham and David, and of course, Christ. Amen? Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. If you have any questions about the covenants, um, I'm sure if there are any, it'd be about the Abrahamic covenant. Um, that's fine. I'd love to discuss it with you. If you need prayer, um, I would love to pray with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of, not just a God of promise, but you are the ultimate promise keeper. We cannot name a promise that you've broken, uh, at least one that is unconditional. You've never changed. And uh, when things are based upon your integrity, they remain. And so, Lord, we thank you that you're a God of integrity. We thank you that any promise to us, as, as Paul says, in Christ Jesus is yes and amen. Uh, it's irrevocable. It's unchangeable. We cannot affect it. And so I pray that you would, Lord, further convince us of your goodness. You're faithful to us. You cannot change your nature, as, as Paul says. And um, Yeah, and I just pray that as we continue in this study, that it would, would lead nicely into a look at end-time stuff, which, as Paul says, is to be for the church's encouragement. And it seems that so many right now are doomsday preachers, and it's contrary, Lord, to your word. And so we want to make it something to look forward to and to celebrate, um, because, Lord, you have designed it, and you will bring us to your intended end. Thank you, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Lord bless you guys. <clears throat>